Okay, we're going to begin tonight on Revelation 6, and it is profoundly different for me to teach this the way that the Lord is, is showing me. We're coming out of Revelation 4 and 5, where we saw a scroll in the right hand of God the Father that could only be opened by Jesus, and that's all established in chapter 5 of Revelation. Looking back on Jesus' crucifixion, looking back at all of the criteria and the credentials that he had to have to be the one who could actually open this scroll. We also know, I do, a little better what's on this scroll than I've ever known before based on Jeremiah 32, that it was a plan of redemption, a price that would have to be paid, but also how possession would be taken. Again, it begins to hit us with particular scriptures that we are bought with a price, that we are not our own. And we begin to recognize that he paid a price for us. And, we, and all these stories begin to fit together. But I'm not going to do any more of the reteaching of Revelation 4 and 5 than I have to. Because we need to get on to, to chapter 6. Because chapter 6 is the opening, uh, the removing of these seals and the opening of this plan of redemption. But before we get into Revelation 6, I want us to go to Ruth chapter 3. I love this chapter. I love this book because of the symbolism that's in it, the story that's found in this, because culminates in this relationship between Boaz, who we describe him as the kinsman redeemer, the one who will redeem, and Ruth, the beauty of a very contrite heart, and what happens when those two people meet and the love affair begins between a bride and a bridegroom. And they have a child whose name is Obed, whose name means worship. And you begin to recognize that worship is the very natural outcome of a relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. It's not something we fabricate. It's the result of life. But as Naomi was recognizing the relationship that was beginning to stir between Boaz and Ruth, she spends a few minutes in chapter 3 preparing Ruth for her first real encounter with Boaz. Boaz has seen her, acknowledged her, told the reapers to leave more so that she could pick up more. And there's so much symbolism in this, and I know this has been taught several times uh, over the last few years. But this particular passage, uh, beginning with verse 3 of chapter 3, is the one that I, it just catches my attention. Because this is about a bride getting ready for a bridegroom. These are the steps necessary for her to be ready to be redeemed by the kinsman redeemer. So to so begin to get this connection, these had to be done so that she could step into the redeeming plan that was, that was in, in the works, that Boaz loved her. But she had to meet some conditions before Boaz would really be able to, to take the, the steps that he needed to take. This is what this is about. This is about a bride getting ready for a bridegroom so that she could be redeemed by this kinsman redeemer, this landowner whose name was Boaz. Beginning with verse 3, wash yourself. And notice that these things had to be done in order. So what does that symbolize to us? What would that washing tell us? Why was that necessary to be as a first step? Had to be a cleansing. It is the picture of our sin being dealt with, of us being clean before the Lord. Second, anoint yourself. 
What is that? Putting on the what? Putting on the Holy Spirit. We're clean, but we're clean for a purpose. We're clean so that we could be filled, so that we could take on that anointing oil and put that raiment upon thee. So put on clean clothes. What are clothes almost always in the Bible? Raiment generally speaks of the testimony, the outward sign of something that had happened inwardly. And again, you notice why this had to be done in order because you wouldn't have told her, put on clean clothes and then take a bath. Or put on the perfume, you put on the anointing, put on your clothes and then get in the bath. These things had to be done in order and they have to be done in order by us. We have to be clean before the Lord, forgiven before the Lord. We have to take on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And with that, we take on this new testimony so that our outward life will display what's happened to us inwardly. And then the the next thing, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down, then thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down. If this is going to work, what is that? What would it appear like if somebody tells you to go lay at somebody else's feet? Humility. Have to submit, have to recognize how this relationship is going to work. And then that last instruction, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. What is that one? If somebody's going to tell you what to do and you do it, what is that called? It's obedience. So we have this wonderful picture here of what it takes for us as a bride to be ready for a bridegroom, to be clean before the Lord, to take on the anointing of the Holy Spirit, to put on a new testimony as the evidence of something that's happened inside us, put ourselves before the Lord in humility, and then whatever he says, do it. That's obedience. It's a very simple picture of the Christian life. Okay, let's go now to Revelation chapter 6. I'll get to this more specifically in just a few minutes. Again, I have such plans when I start studying that how much of this I can cover. I think I got through four verses, and that's about what we're going to be able to get through tonight. I keep thinking it's going to go faster. It's just not. But I want you to listen to this as we begin in Revelation 6.1. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read the first four or five verses. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard... As it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him and had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I could keep going and read about the rest of these seals that were open. I know by the Bibles that I use and probably the ones that you have in your hand, that there's probably a little title above each one of those. Some Bibles have them, some don't. Because people who are writing the commentaries on the Bible have already got all these figured out. So they want to pass that along to you. And they're going to put those little marks in there, either in the column or right above them and separate each one of these and say, well, this is this, this is this, this is this, and this is this. And they may be really correct. And I may have lost my mind and I will admit that's always a possibility. So y'all can factor that in however you'd like to. 
the craziness has finally overwhelmed me and, and that's all you're getting. But when I look at the passage titles, I gave a Bible just a few minutes ago to Diana, it's a pilgrim Bible, and you go into that chapter six, it's got this thing carved up with all the explanations and telling you when this is occurring. And I got lost in it because it, it was so inconsistent, so fragmented, I was like, I can't make this make sense. I know what they're saying, and I, and I guess I could just swallow it, but I couldn't swallow it. Because I want us to think for just a second. Just set all of that stuff aside, all those little headings, all the topics, every little help they're trying to give you, set it all aside, and let's just start from something we know. There's a plan of redemption that's being held now in the hands of Jesus. He's taken it from the Father. And on that, there are seals across that so that it can't be opened. Now, first of all, we kind of have to get in our mind that those seals are things that should not be there or that have to be undone so that the full plan of redemption can actually unfold. There are things to be removed or things to be accomplished. They're not some glorious part of the story. They have to be gotten rid of or done, taken care of, so that the redemptive plan can be unrolled and seen and fulfilled. So what if there's a possibility here that this reads very similarly to the book of Ruth, where these are actually things that have to be done for us to step into the fullness of the redemptive relationship that we're supposed to have now with Jesus. I tell you, what drastically change the symbolism. And again, I, I will tell you tonight, like I tell you often, I'm giving you many, many miles to disagree with me because this is so radically different than anything I have ever heard, ever, I've ever studied. My goodness, it makes so much more sense to me than anything I've ever read or studied about revelations that left me bewildered after I studied it. This doesn't leave me bewildered. What if this first seal is the first thing that needs to be done in our life to take advantage of the full redemption that God has for us? What if the second one is the second thing that needs to happen? And the third one is the third thing that needs to happen. Then all of a sudden, we have a different reason, not so that we'll understand something that's going to happen someday, but something that's designed to happen in us right now. Just again, just like reading Ruth, I don't have any trouble connecting what that wash means, what that anoint means, what put the raiment on means, what the humility means, and what the obedience means. I don't have any trouble with that. That's the life I preach. That's the life that we teach right now. What if Revelation was trying to tell us from the redemptive work that we already know, what brings us into the fullness of the relationship that we already know, but where we're still contending with sin, what if this is, begins to tell us how to take advantage of the full redemptive reality of God and what we're going to need to know to do that. So let's look at this from a changed perspective. What if God's trying to tell us what needs to happen now for us to be fully engaged in his redemptive work? So chapter six is this part of the second vision. The first one was when he was among the churches. This is now John in the throne room. The throne is the center of all that is being seen still. The lamb has now been declared worthy. He begins to break the seals and a powerful vision begins to follow the breaking of each of these seals because he'll break one and see something. He'll break one and he'll see something. He breaks one and he'll see something. So the seals need to be broken one by one 
and in the correct sequence, just like in Ruth. They had to be in order. What if that's happening here? So I put in my notes, a major change in perspective is recognized. It is necessary that we see the breaking of the seals as things that happen when the Lamb, the Christ, the Son of God becomes Lord of our life. That when we see the King, when the King becomes real to us, that these are things that need to occur at that moment. So it's not a record of any particular time or activity in history. That's what it's always tried to be. This has got to mean this. This is going to mean this. And so it's a struggle to force fit each one of these to create the right sequence. And when I look at these seals and some of them are awful and one of them is later the the prayers of the martyrs. And it's like, wait a minute. If they're all seals, they all ought to be either about how to release it. But some of them can't be bad and some of them can't be good. Like, that doesn't fit to me. Again, that's the pretty standard teaching. These are the things that happen when Christ begins to rule, set his king in us. So not looking for dates, certain events, but we're seeing principles. I put this in bold. I want us to make sure I got it. We're seeing principles in the form of visions. These things happen in his people at any time and anywhere when Christ becomes Lord in their life. When we begin this in just a second, what's the first thing that was spoken in each one of these seals? When he'd open one and see the vision, what was the very first thing, the first instruction? Come and see. What are we commanded to do? What allows us to see? Remember that the daily activity of my body is to sense. I know when I'm hungry. I know when I'm thirsty. I know when I'm sleeping. I don't have a good sense that I don't, or sometimes don't know when I'm sleeping. Today I do. So if I, again, if I lay my head down here after a while and don't move me, just throw something over me. The daily activity of my soul is to think and feel because that's what my soul is. It's my mind and my emotions. The daily activity of my spirit is to watch and to listen. If I'm going to come and see, where do I have to be in the spirit? I have to be in this relationship. And again, I'll just mention this briefly. I know that physically I am not in the throne room of God. My soul is not able to exist constantly and permanently in the presence of God. But my spirit is. My spirit that allows me to connect with God in spirit and in truth, my spirit can reside in the presence of God. When I die, my soul can. And when the rapture comes, my body can. But today, my spirit allows me to live in the presence of God. I don't have to leave. That's revelation to me. That's new to me. As much as I think I can talk around it, to see it here was was brand new. So when he says, come and see, he's saying, I want to show you something that has to be accomplished in the spiritual relationship so that you can step into the fullness of the redemptive work. Come and see. And then he talks about what you can hear. So these are principles that we're learning in the forms of visions. And they happen to any person, anytime, anywhere, when Christ becomes Lord in their life. And again, we know in most of the Christian world, because when religion doesn't teach this, religion doesn't teach you that God needs to be Lord in your life. We use those words. But in the world of religion, what needs to become Lord? Religion. We need conformity. We need rules. We need for these things to work 
and so that everything fits and we need the churches to be full and we need people doing these certain things. We need to get people involved. That becomes Lord. Church becomes Lord. The religion becomes Lord. The denomination becomes Lord. But when God, when that finds its place and God steps onto that pedestal to be Lord of our life, certain things have to occur and it begins with that scripture, come and see. So we've seen it in chapter four and five. The scroll contains the process, the redemptive work. Here's how the vision begins. Again, verse one. And I saw, this is John, when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. So let's start right here by remembering that the seals tell us of things that are keeping us from stepping into the fullness of God's presence and the fullness of his power. So this seal's got to be broken. This is a step we have to take. So let's talk about this one. What is it that keeps us from stepping into that place? I just mentioned religion is one of them. Our carnal mind, which means I'm a believer, fully able to function in the spirit, but my mind and my emotions are still dominating. That's carnal. You see, that is always going to handicap us from stepping into the fullness of the redemptive plan. Because I'm always trying to overcome my mind. I'm constantly trying to overcome my emotions, trying to win victories, win battles over emotional things that are going on in me when I was designed to recognize that those battles should be over. The battle over my mind, the battle over my emotions should already be won because the spirit should be victorious. And my spirit, my soul, and my body should live in agreement recognizing that they have to be in agreement with one another. But so many times it's our soul that dominates. Our fleshly desires, habits, situations keep us from receiving the light of the gospel that allows us to take that step. They keep us from seeing the meaning of the symbolism that's really here. And after the lamb breaks a seal, one of the four living creatures. Now, we, again, it's unfortunate that they use the word beast because it automatically gives us this connotation of something bad. The word beast just means a living creature. And we already know who these living creatures are because they've been mentioned all the way from back over here early in Revelation. That those four beasts are the culmination and the story of a living God. The ox and the eagle and all those things that are telling us about these things, these aspects of God, these four living creatures are all reflective of the life, the demonstrated life of God. These are not beasts. These are not gnashing. These are not tearing. These are living creatures. So it's better, you know, if, if your Bible says living creature, it's much better. So when that first seal was broken, we recognize that there's a sound that comes forth out of this that needs to be heated. We need to to be able to say when that first one's broken, that in this redemptive work, I can check that off. You can find that in my heart right now. Come and see or come and receive illumination. I want to tell you, we will not move into the fullness of God until we can put a check beside that and say, I live in a place where I have come before the Father to receive illumination. We will not move. If we can't put a check mark beside that in my life and say, I live that condition. I live that place where you're not going to have to convince me 
You're not going to have to overcome my biases or my history to bring truth to me because I'm coming for the Lord to receive illumination always. You're not going to have to fight me, God, to tell me the truth, to show me the truth. You're going to find that heart in me where I come and I live before you ready for that illumination. Look at these scriptures for just a second. Let me go back and read this verse just a second. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder. You're taking notes, write these down. Job 37 verse 5. It says this, God thunders with his voice wondrously. This was at Mount Sinai. They were hearing a voice as if it were thunder and they're describing it in the wonderful aspect that it was because the voice of God sounded like thunder. I think that this is in Matthew. The scripture says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to them. So this is when the father begins to speak to Jesus before his death. This is Jesus' soul being troubled because of what he understands is about to occur. And it says that those who heard it heard God's voice and it sounded like thunder. So it shouldn't be any difficulty when we come to this seal being broken and the vision being seen. It says when they heard this voice as if it were thunder, then what are we actually hearing? We're hearing the voice of God speaking in this vision. Let me read it again. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Remember, the four living creatures are all telling us about four aspects of God as a living, fully, completely living God. It's talking to us about the aspects. I went through those again last week or two weeks ago. And I'm not going to go through them again about those four aspects of God, all brought by the, what the eagle means, what the lamb means, or each one of those that are, that are listed. And I, again, you can look at my notes sometimes if you want to go back and see them. So his voice could be heard as thunder. In verse 2, Hold a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, Again, I don't know your Bible, but most of the time above verse two, you're going to get these words. First seal, the false Christ. The typical teaching is that these seals are negative. But what's the problem with this? If I turn to Revelation 19 and I read about a guy sitting on a white horse, who is that guy sitting on a white horse? It's the conqueror. It's Jesus. So why in the world would God giving a revelation his revelation to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ, why in the world would he mix that symbolism? To say one time it's Jesus and the other time up here it's this false God. It's not. He didn't do that. He is telling us here in this that this is the conqueror. Come and see the conqueror. Come and see this person who's sitting on this white horse. So let the symbolism in the simplest way still be consistent. Because in Revelation 19, it says he's the one who's faithful and true. The word of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And we know that it's Jesus Christ. A horse symbolizes strength, vitality, fearlessness. So horses for many years and many wars were heavily used in war as just by scouts and by messengers and by warriors. 
in Zechariah 6 through 5, the four colored horses that listed there symbolize the four spirits of heaven. Let me read that to you if you want to make that note. This is Zechariah 6, beginning with verse 1. And I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, in the second chariot black horses, in the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot gristled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Again, even here in Zechariah, we get this picture of a representation of God and not some false God. They received a message from the Lord. They came to fulfill the specific purpose for which they were sent, these horses. So what does white, why white horse in this one? What does it symbolize? Purity, holiness, cleanliness. Isn't that odd? What did Naomi tell Ruth to do first? To cleanse yourself. You have got to be clean before the Lord. In 1 Peter 1.15 we read, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Consider all the things that we're tolerating in our life that are not holy. We know it. We can excuse it and say it's culturally acceptable, but there's no holiness in it. And God's saying, if you're going to step into the redemptive work that I have for you, that you will find the reality of living in a holy, pure relationship with me. Not because I'm going to condemn you for it, because you understand the freedom that brings you when that stuff is gone. He comes to cleanse us from all the impurities of the flesh. Every bit of our self-life has to be overcome. That's what this vision is telling us. He comes to take away all that brings us hurt and injury in order to give us eternal well-being. Understand this. What should we be able to stand? Very first, in a great move toward God, what would really help us? is if I could stand here and just somehow shake and get rid of this nonsense that's been hanging on me forever. Would that help me move forward? Absolutely. If I could just get rid of the stuff that has attached itself to me. The habits, the thought patterns, all those situations, the addictions, the struggles, the thoughts that I have about myself. I had a person in my office this last week and just told them how drastically your life could change in this moment if you would just forget what you know about yourself and start believing what God would say. And that's it. The one change. And they saw it in a moment, just how powerful that switch could be if we could quit believing about ourselves, the nonsense that we believe to believe the truth that God would tell us. He's trying to tell us that this is a critical first step in this sequence of how to come before the Lord and enjoy the full redemptive work that God has for us. The rider and the horse have one purpose. So the rider has a bow, and one possibility is that that bow is used as a weapon. Psalm 45 is the messianic song of love. It's a bridal or a marriage song that's sung from the bridegroom to the bride. Here's what it says. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. I don't know how to better connect what that bow is about. What's this rider bringing to us? Bringing victory. 
He's got that bow and he's bringing victory. The purpose of these arrows, these words, is to bring truth, meekness, righteousness, so that all lies and unrighteousness are done away with. How strange the Christian world would be if all of a sudden all that stuff could be gone. That concert last night with Chris Tomlin and Big Daddy Weave, and that, I mean, it was remarkable. To hear that United Spirit Arena just singing with one voice, no politics, no denominations, no who's right, no who's wrong, just exposed in a moment where stuff had been laid down and the glory of the Lord was lifted up and it was overwhelming, just truly overwhelming to hear some of those songs as, you know, when they would quit singing and everybody, because it was set up to be a worship service. It wasn't a concert. It was set up to be praise and worship. And that's what they did it that way. And it was truly remarkable when they'd stop and you could hear these amazing voices just filling that United Spirit Arena. And you realize that's possible. When we let down the garbage that we carry, it causes us to disagree with one another, to pick up the reality over the Spirit of God together, what that sounds like in the ears of God. Again, it was truly amazing. These arrows, when they find their mark, bring conviction of some hidden things in our life. They are designed when originating with God to bring us to conviction and restoration. And perhaps it was such an arrow that pierced Paul's heart on the road to Damascus. Because, I mean, he thought he was doing everything right. He had it down. He, was, he knew what he was doing was what he was supposed to be doing. And maybe it was one of these arrows shot from this horse by this rider. Because who talked to him? Who talked to Paul that day? Jesus with his brightness all around him. What did Jesus shoot at Paul that day? Truth. That was the arrow. I wish I could convey this. Sometimes I feel like my words don't carry the power that my heart's trying to carry. How liberating it would be. How dynamically different it would be for all of us. If those arrows that have been shot in our direction would hit that mark and suddenly we could see within ourselves the part that was holding us back. The places where we've even defended to be right, I can't tell you how many positions I have surrendered in these last nine years. Unbelievably different. Because God shot that arrow, hit some place with brought truth such an undeniable way and changed me, changed me deeply so that I, my teaching had to change, the perspective had to change because of something that God was bringing, such revelation. So I think maybe that's what happened which to Paul on the road to Damascus, that Jesus' word shot like an arrow, hit his heart as truth. And everything he had been so adamantly defending that he was going to arrest more Christians in Damascus, that in that moment, after the sight was returned by Ananias and by the power of God, that he began to preach and teach that Jesus was the Son of God. Totally changed. Totally transformed. I'll end with this because it could also mean rainbow. When it says, it seems more likely that he was holding a weapon, that kind of a bow, it also speaks of the same thing as a rainbow. So it's the first mention, the rainbow is, is first connected in the scripture as something that happened under a covenant. The covenant is his word, and it talks about it as, as a two-edged sword. And this particular picture takes us back to the reality of covenant life. It talks about how God conquers, it talks about how he overcomes, and how the, the rainbow talks about his death to sin because it, and it creates the experience that we're supposed to have and we're conformed to his image. 
Only then also can we live in purity and in righteousness. The rider is also given a crown. It's the crown given by God. It's not the crown of thorns that were pressed into the head of Jesus. This crown symbolizes government and authority, and it's only worn by those whose thinking comes from God. Think about that. It's only worn by those whose thinking, whose perspective comes from God. That's supposed to be us. Why? Because I have the mind of Christ. Because I repent. I have changed my mind so that I can see those things only as God sees them and not under the ridiculousness of my own perspective. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. His authority is all inclusive. It begins in heaven and reaches down to all on the earth. All must know that the lamb reigns and that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. All must know that he's Lord in every area of their life. His word searches our hearts and shows us where the ego with his fleshly desires is still reigning. That's, I mean, that's what that arrow will do. That's what that truth will do. It'll show us something still in our life that we're tripping over or that's holding us back, that it's encumbered us to keep us from stepping into something great. All must be brought under Christ's lordship. So the horse and the rider to me are a beautiful picture of Christ going forth to conquer with a covenant and kingly authority to rule. He rides into the difficult things of our life, the hardest things of our life, and shows us areas that are not submitted to him. He's willing to do that. And I guarantee when it happens, if Christians are ready for it, they'll recognize it for the blessing that it is. They'll recognize that God's put a spotlight on something that was not designed to be there that's actually causing us pain, exposing that, not so they'll hurt us, so that we can get rid of it and live in the freedom of what life looks like without it. He rides victoriously. He'll continue his conquest until we come into the fullness of his life and the fullness of his love and bring forth a revelation of the Christ who lives within us. That's his desire. So that when somebody looks at us, they see Christ and not the foolishness of ourselves. Well, I think that's the first seal. I think it's the place within our heart that allows God as our Lord to show us those areas of our life where we're not clean, where we're not white. And he does it with his words. He does it with truth. He tells us these things and they ought to connect. What does this truth do? Sets us free. If we want to live in the freedom to be able to step into the redemptive plan of God, that has to be the condition of our heart. We have to be a people who are ready to come and be illuminated. Let God show us. Let the truth. And again, it's such a powerful picture in Paul. What happened that day was God came before Paul and says, do you dare come and see do you dare look at yourself and what you're doing and what you think is so right? Do you have the courage to come look at your life, to come and let me illuminate something so that you can see it for the error that's there, so that you can receive the truth of what I want to show you? That arrow is coming. You want to step into what God has? This has to be step one. This has to be the condition of your heart. Remember the quest to understand what this revelation means to us right now not just prophetically, about something that's coming. What does this mean to us right now? Well, this speaks to me right now. Why, as believers, do we get so stuck and have such a difficult time moving forward in our maturity and our understanding of God? Is because we refuse, honestly, we refuse to live openly before God so that he can show us those areas that are really hurting us and holding us back. And when he shows us to have the willingness to, to lay them down, to let the things of God begin to be seen in us, purity, the white horse. Because if he's going to ride from a white horse and ride victoriously, what's his objective for me? 
Lord, we thank you for coming to teach us, for illuminating this scripture. And I pray, Lord, that even in this small group, because this small group right here can change the world. It's all it would take to change the world right here. If we're willing to live openly before you under those words, come and see, come and let me illuminate. Let me show you what needs to be seen as this rider comes on this white horse with the bow in his hand, the crown on his head, with all power and authority, bringing the truth by these arrows. Let us understand who you are on this horse and your purpose to do in us those things necessary so that we can move forward in your redemptive plan. Set our hearts before you already in anticipation of the next one. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.